Good morning and welcome to the fifth annual Texas Tribune Festival. I'm Ben Werman. I'm the higher education reporter at the Houston Chronicle. Uh, this morning we have four chancellors from uh, Texas public university systems with us. Uh, we'll be covering topics ranging from campus carry to the cost of college. Um, if you're sticking with the higher education track today, next up is a panel exploring what public schools can learn from private universities. And this afternoon, uh, UT Austin's new interim athletic director will speak with the Tribune's Matthew Watkins. And then later there are going to be panels focusing on higher education and the legislature, and um, I believe the cost of college. Uh, lunch is on the main mall, and there's a reception this evening at the AT&T Center. Uh, so we're going to talk for about 45 minutes, and then we'll open things up to a Q&A from the audience. Uh, if you're going to tweet along, use the TTF hashtag. So on this morning's panel, we have Lee Jackson, Chancellor of the University of North Texas System. Brian McCall from the Texas State University System. Robert Duncan from the Texas Tech University System. And William McRaven from the University of Texas System. So it's fitting that we are at UT Austin this morning because first thing I want to talk about is campus carry, and this has kind of become <clears throat> the front line of the, what is a continuing, I guess, battle over exactly how this new campus carry law will play out. Um, as many of you probably know, the legislature uh, passed a law this past session that allows for concealed, uh, concealed weapons, I guess, and um, handguns in buildings and throughout campus. Uh, the law itself gives some leeway to uh, universities to determine what are gun-free zones, but uh, it's kind of unclear exactly how much leeway universities have. That's actually the first thing I wanted to touch on. Um, and since we are at UT, I was thinking maybe Chancellor McRaven, you could talk a little bit uh, first about what, how much leeway do you feel universities actually have in establishing gun-free zones? Yeah, thanks, Ben. Uh, first, thanks for uh, for hosting us here today. Uh, great event. This is my first time at the uh, at the Trib Fest, and uh, and I see a lot of the events going on today are are pretty interesting. I hope to actually bounce around to a few more later on today. Um, in terms of the campus carry, you know, the, the first thing that I've said when I have an opportunity to talk to faculty or students is the law has passed, and so we had a great opportunity uh, during the legislative session to talk to legislators to make our point. Uh, and, and as you know, uh, I was concerned about campus carry. I was not in favor of the, of the bill, but having said that, now that the law has passed, our responsibility is to make sure that we carry out the law, not only to the letter of the law, but in the spirit of the law. So what we've done is uh, we have convened uh, working groups. Each campus has a working group uh, because each campus is a little different. And at the end of the day, of course, the presidents will have an opportunity to make recommendations uh, on where they want to see gun-free zones. But candidly, uh, we are trying to uh, ensure that we have some commonality across the UT system where it's appropriate. Uh, so each campus has a working group. That working group meets uh, weekly with the, my deputy chancellor, David Daniel. Uh, they do that virtually uh, on a video teleconference, and they are working through the issues. Um, there are, candidly, a little bit more issues than we expected. There's some second and third order effects that I think were unanticipated, but we're working through them. Uh, so, you know, at, at the end of the day, uh, I think we're going to be able to identify some common areas, but again, the law is pretty clear. It's up to the presidents of the universities uh, to decide kind of how they want to implement this. 
and we're just trying to kind of facilitate that discussion. And so far, it's going pretty well. Uh, I mean, the one thing I would leave you with is, uh, you know, come next fall, we're going to make sure that our faculty and our students and our visitors are as safe as we can possibly make them without infringing upon really what is the important environment to have on a campus. And, and I am um, I'm adamant about making sure that we don't create this kind of barricade situation uh, or a, a garrison or a military base-like feel to it. It needs to continue to feel like a campus, be like a campus, have all the academic freedom that we expect in campus uh, discussions, uh, and yet still be able to follow the law. Okay. Do you, do you think that, I mean, I, I know here specifically at UT Austin, uh, there are, I think, a thousand plus faculty who have signed right. petitions calling on classrooms, among other places, to be gun-free zones. Is that realistic? Is that something that the university has the power to do? Yeah, again, I think we're, we're looking through it. Uh, the problem is some of our buildings are dual use. So you run into the issue of if you happen to have a, maybe a clinic in a classroom building or an area where we think that there will be a confrontation uh, in a um, you know, faculty deliberation or senate deliberation or something like that, uh, and yet that's in a, in a classroom environment or in a building that's got classrooms in it, how do we differentiate? So we're working through all those issues. Uh, remains to be seen yet, but again, we'll be prepared to uh, roll this out when the time is appropriate. And uh, at, at the other university systems, I, I understand, I think there are also similar processes happening. Um, how do you each feel about, about how this could play out and about how, uh, I mean, do you have concerns about safety issues with this or do you think that uh, it will play itself out? Well, I really appreciate in a final analysis that the legislature did allow some flexibility for the campuses to consider unique circumstances. We too have a system in, in three campus groups working very thoughtfully. We haven't yet had uh, highly emotional discussions, um, and frankly, I'm, I'm glad that's the case, because while this is a very, very emotional issue on both sides, if you look at the facts, this is probably not one of the ten biggest issues we ought to be talking about here at the conference that will affect the outcome of our students in higher education. The likelihood of there being an incident on one of our campuses involving weapons is unfortunately in our society pretty high. The likelihood that it will involve the concealed handgun license holder is based on the past history, not very high. So we've had arrests on our UNT campus in Denton for illegally bringing weapons on the campus in the last decade. Not a single one of those arrests has involved a CHL permit holder. So they have apparently obeyed the law more than the people that didn't have the, the CHL permits. Colorado's had this in place for 12 years. They've had exactly one incident None at Colorado State. They've had one incident at Colorado where a faculty member took out her weapon to demonstrate and it accidentally discharged. As far as I know, that's the only one incident that's occurred in Colorado. So I would say the likelihood of this being as big an issue two years from now as it is today is not great based on the statistics. I agree. Every campus and every system is working in a similar fashion. In the Texas State system, we've put together a council of advocates to look at best practices. We have representatives from our 14 campuses, police chiefs, uh, lawyers, student affairs vice presidents, and we're looking at all suggestions. For example, it was suggested that we should not have guns where alcohol is served on campus, and it was suggested that we serve alcohol in all the buildings. <laughs> so we're not taking all of the suggestions, but we are listening to all of the suggestions. That's interesting. I, um, 
I think that uh, the legislature, I agree with, with uh, Chancellor Jackson, that the legislature, in giving us the flexibility that we have, if you're going to have a campus carry uh, law or, or uh, legislation, that we I'm sorry. Okay. There, is that better? Can you hear me now? <laughs> so we'll talk louder then as well. But uh, I think I, I think if you're going to have a campus carry law or legislation uh, permitting that on campus, the flexibility that the legislature gave us is very, I think, significant. It allows us to, well, one of the things we were worried about is the ability to exempt uh, firearms in areas, in labs and other areas where we have contractual obligations not to provide maximum security issue or uh, maximum security opportunities. So uh, I think to that extent, the legislature uh, really was, I think, constructive in the way they went about this. One thing that I do believe that ought to happen on, on all of the campuses is uh, the offer of a training session for law enforcement faculty and students who are going to be carrying on campus to understand the rules of the game understand where the prohibitions are, uh, where the, uh, and what to do in the event of an active shooter. I think that's a, the danger, the, the danger I see in, in campus carry is what do you do in, if you are a licensed uh, firearm carrier and what, what do you do in the event there is uh, uh, an active shooter? Because I think that's unclear and just having a CHL doesn't necessarily give you the training to be involved in uh, some sort of an altercation. So it's purely a self-defense mechanism. So that concern I have is, is the lack of training that uh, CHL holders will have in this environment. And so hopefully, uh, I know at, at our institutions, we're, we, and I've been pushing to have some sort of a training. You can't require it, but you can certainly offer it, and hopefully it uh, can uh, be helpful for those who are carrying. I know that this is something that's still a ways out. It doesn't take effect until August. Um, but to the extent that, that any of you know what might actually happen at the universities in your system, I mean, have you, do you think it will be a fairly uniform process? Will it be different at each campus? Will it be the same across the state at all the systems? Have, have you all talked about this? I mean, how do you see it playing out uh, from campus to campus? I think over the period of time, uh, everyone will look at each other. I think we'll learn from each other, and I think it'll be the first round will probably look different than it will five years from now. I think you'll see more uh, collaboration with regard to how you, how you accommodate uh, the different areas like labs and different sorts of things. So I think we'll all learn from each other on that. So moving on, um, <clears throat> Texas has spent the last 15 years pretty aggressively trying to diversify uh, higher education in terms of uh, getting more minorities going to college and earning college degrees uh, through the Closing the Gaps initiative, which is wrapping up uh, this year. Um, and it's, it has been fairly successful. There's a 246% increase in Hispanic enrollment, 175% increase in the number of African-American students who are actually graduating from college. Um, but the state is now moving on to a new strategic plan, the 60 by 30 plan, which is uh, fairly, uh, has some fairly lofty goals as well. The first of which is to get 60% of the population some sort of college certification. Right now, only 38% of the population does. 
Uh, how, how possible will this be? I mean, it's a 15-year plan, a 15-year goal. Is it something that, that the Texas university systems can achieve? We've been increasing degree production and certificates about an average of 3.5% a year for the past decade. This plan says that we'll step that up to 4%. So that's either a very, very ambitious increase uh, or it's, it's uh, within our reach. Texas is the only state whose population in the group 18 to 25 years of age is going to grow over the next decade. Because of the baby boom bump, most states are seeing a decline in college-going population. So we have the population to work with. There's obviously a concern about college readiness. We've improved high school graduation rates, but there's indication, troubling indication, that college readiness is not improving. But I think based on our past history, we can do this. UNT now has 35% uh, African-American and Hispanic uh, population. Our UNT Dallas campus, by the way, our president, Bob Mong, is here this morning, has a 75% uh, African-American and Hispanic enrollment. Texas has started to put campuses closer to where the urban centers are and where the people are. And in fact, all of us pretty much have seen greater increases for Hispanic and African-American enrollment and graduation. That's why I think the uh, 60 by 30 goal is, is doable. There's no question that setting the goal of closing the gaps years ago has caused us to be in a better spot than we would have been had the coordinating board not set that goal. In our own system, in the past five years, we've increased African-American uh, enrollment by 26% and uh, Hispanic enrollment by 52%. That's in 60 months. Uh, we're moving in a good place. And not only that, at our largest university, Texas State University, while our retention and graduation rate for uh, Anglos is high, it's not as high as it is for Hispanics, which is not as high as it is for African Americans. The complete reverse of what has been traditional. And that's because of mentoring, aggressive counseling, aggressive academic advising uh, that has paid results. I think the goal is a, a good goal, and uh, I think we'll see a better Texas as a result of it years down the road. I agree that the goal is reachable. I think it's it's a, a natural demographic in our state that uh, we're going to be, uh, we are growing at a rate, especially in our Hispanic population, that is going to give us plenty of opportunities to to open higher education to all. And I think that uh, it, in our system, uh, I know our board has recently emphasized the importance of Texas Tech University, our flagship, to be a Hispanic-serving institution. We're now at about 21% and have grown significantly in the past 10 years in that area. So I think Brian is exactly correct. The programs that you can have on your campus with regard to the increasing retention as well as, uh, as, well as graduation rates are very important. Uh, we have a program at, at Texas Tech University called Mentor Tech and the students who go through that program, about 86% retention rate, which is higher than the general uh, population at the university. So it takes programs, it also takes investment in that as well, and then at the end of the day, we've got to keep the cost of education under control. And I think um, that, that's a challenge, that's a, a partnership between the legislature and each of our institutions on how we are able to keep our tuition uh, at, at levels that uh, are appropriate for uh, the growth of all Texans. And I would echo the, the comments of the other three chancellors. Um, I think we also have to continue to look at new modalities in education to figure out how do we reach 
some of the underrepresented minorities. Uh, and, and, you know, we, we kind of fell into this uh, love affair with MOOCs for a while. And then you take a look at MOOCs and really uh, it's in the single digits in terms of the number of folks that actually complete MOOC courses. But as we've begun to, to look at that and you realize that, well, with the blended courses, they're a little better. Um, at, at the UT system, we have uh, initiated this Institute for Transformational Learning and the competency-based education. Now, our competency-based education really has a lot of mentoring involved in it, and we're, uh, we're kind of beta testing this, if you will, down at uh, UT Rio Grande Valley, where, of course, uh, predominantly Hispanic uh, population, and the initial indicators are good because, again, it is competency-based in the sense that uh, you move at your pace, but there are, we have invested a lot in uh, student to kind of faculty ratios in this mentoring program to make sure we can uh, take these young students who, who uh, and these are not easy degrees, bioinformatics and some other uh, medical degrees. Uh, but so far, the, again, the trajectory looks good. If this works, then the question is, is it scalable to, to other groups across the state so that, again, using a different modality, we can... Yeah, we can achieve this uh, 60 uh, by 30 goal. And I, I do think it's a, again, I think it's a great bar to set. And I think we just need to push hard to strive to get there. And, and that's one of the goals, the, the 60 by 30, obviously it's named that, but that's one of the, I think, most defined, clearest goals. Um, another uh, is to make sure that, that institutions are held more accountable uh, by graduating students that have marketable skills. Um, could potentially be a fairly vague term. Um, I'm curious if uh, if your systems have started working on defining what these marketable skills could be, uh, and and how do you make sure that that students one graduate with them, but that they're able to say that they have them. I mean, is this something they check off on a list, or is it something that goes on their degree? I, I'm really excited that the state has turned to to this workforce connection. As long as the state does it comprehensively and thoughtfully. The economy is so complex that many students don't work directly in their field as captured by labor department uh, labor codes. Uh, we have music graduates who start their own companies and they'll show up as entrepreneurs. Uh, they write their own apps. So as long as you recognize that there's a set of skills you want graduates to have and you allow some options. Uh, we've started a student success initiative across our system uh, that's looking at electronic portfolios so that students who achieve recognized credentials, they go through leadership programs and they are leaders, can capture that outside their transcript because those are the kind of things that all the surveys of employers say employers are looking for, not just the technical skills, but the critical thinking skills, the leadership, the communication. We want to help capture that for students and make sure they know what it is they're doing that has market value. A lot of young people don't realize what employers are going to find valuable. When you counsel them, they say, oh, I didn't, I didn't realize that was worth talking about. It's not on my transcript. So we've got to do a better job of finding out the important skills and then uh, measuring them. As long as the state doesn't ask each department to identify a discipline-specific marketable skill. So if philosophy majors, in fact, can prove they have better communication skills, uh, better critical thinking skills, and then they're going on to graduate school or a profession, those critical thinking skills are very, very valuable. Uh, long before I came to the system almost six years ago, uh, our system had this focus of uh, jobs and employment 
tied to degrees. My predecessors and the presidents in the system have long held this focus. We have a unique system in that of the eight colleges and universities in our system, three are two-year schools, one of which, Lamar Institute of Technology, which produces both AA degrees and certificates, focuses heavily on certificates to the point that of all the two-year schools in Texas, it's number one with the highest pay for graduates within a year, number three in the nation. 83% system-wide of our graduates are working or in graduate school within a year of graduation. And so we have, a, we could improve by 17% or so, and we intend to and, and want to, but it is a focus in our system. Well, I think that if you look at the new goals that the higher that the coordinating board has set forth, you're, you're really involving not just us as general academic institutions or, or professional institutions, but also community colleges, technical colleges as well. And so I think there's a balance that we have to always be aware of is that the higher education spectrum is, is, involves a lot of different opportunities. And part of that is the creative process the critical thinking process that isn't necessarily a technical skill, but something that we can't forget about in higher education to, to create the great thinkers of the world, the great leaders of the world. Uh, and so uh, all of that has to put, find its proper balance. And so I think as we go through in these goals, which are laudable goals, uh, and but we all have, you know, we have different uh, challenges as we find those the right balance. You, do you think that there, uh, as some of these goals have been made and there has been more of a workforce focus, um, I think especially outside of universities, I mean, does some of that get lost in this? I don't know if I understand the question, but I, I think if you're, I'm saying that uh, you, you, the goals here are laudable, but you still have to find the right balance uh, because higher education is about more than just creating jobs. It's about it's about creating thinking processes, creative processes. It's about putting inventors, uh, leaders, uh, persons who get a degree in one area but succeed hugely in business because they understand people, they understand how to manage uh, large operations, they have vision, and then that doesn't necessarily come from just technical types of training. It comes from what higher education has done, I think, over the years has provided that creative process, that creative critical thinking uh, opportunity to open minds, to uh, move people, move, move our, um, uh, get, create, produce great leaders for our country, great uh, inventors and innovators. Yeah, I just want to echo uh, Chancellor Duncan's comments. I could not agree more. Um, yeah, I was a journalism major at UT Austin. Um, knowing that I was heading into the military. But the great thing about the School of Journalism was that they encouraged you to take a lot of electives. And uh, I mean, I took, and this was in, again, 1976, 77 timeframe, I took studies on the Middle East, uh, Sufi mysticism, the readings of Khalil Gibran, philosophy, and a whole host of other, uh, other electives that then you know, then you had to learn to write about them, as you can well appreciate, Ben. But you would think that, you know, how useful are those skills going to be to you when you get into the, the real world of the military? Well, guess what? Knowing about the Middle East came in pretty handy in my job. 
Um, and really understanding philosophy and, and, and the depth and breadth of what goes on in the world, I think, is absolutely essential. So uh, certainly we have a responsibility when you look at the Texas Workforce Commission and the, the demand for computer scientists and engineers. All of us understand we need to drive to create more engineers and more computer scientists over the course of the next 10 years. But candidly, we don't want to become technical schools. That's not the purpose of higher education. And so, again, as all the chancellors have said, we have an obligation, I think, to the population here in the state of Texas is to create leaders, to keep, create thinkers, to create inventors, as Bob said. And, uh, and I think every one of our systems is doing a great job of that. One of the things that I've learned since I've been in the higher ed world is, is that the, the technical aspects, the engineers, the, the physicians, uh, also benefit from exposure to the arts. It is, it's an amazing uh, uh, opportunity in our higher ed world to be able to provide these creative opportunities. And uh, again, I'll, I'll use the word innovations because we need to be training people or at least teaching or giving people the opportunity to learn how to be innovative and creative thinkers. Ben, we, we wouldn't be talking about this, you wouldn't have asked us about it if there weren't some skepticism about the value of higher education. There is a national debate that's unlike any we've had in our history before in which higher education is a little bit on the defensive to prove the value of this process, to prove either the learning outcome of students very specifically or the overall value. So for years, we simply looked at the earning difference between a high school graduate and a college graduate, and we said, oh, it's a lifetime, uh, it's a million and a half dollars more, that's enough. Well, with student debt in some cases and other issues, that answer has not been sufficient in recent years. So I think it's a great thing that the state is going to help us have a very structured discussion where we go through and do a better job of demonstrating the success of our graduates. I'm very excited by the, the pretty novel partnership between the Gallup organization and Purdue, which is now in its third year, measuring the lifelong success of college graduates, not just in material terms and income, uh, but in well-being, health, happiness, success. That's traditionally what a liberal arts education at the undergraduate level was supposed to produce, a greater predictability of success regardless of what career you chose. And we haven't really paid a lot of attention to that database. Very few of us have kept long-term databases on our alumni. You just want to know a mailing address so you can send them a letter once a year and ask for money. Uh, well, we, we need to be more involved with our alumni uh, for this purpose. It's part of the value equation of higher education. And speaking of the value equation, I do want to talk some about cost. I know there's a panel later today that will go deeper into this, but um, since we're all here, I figured it'd be a good time to talk about it. Uh, but, but specifically, I want to talk about, uh, I believe each of your systems has emerging research schools in them, um, which are, are universities that are uh, designated as that by the state. Basically, they're trying to progress and trying to uh, become top tier universities. Um, and when you look at cost uh, to attend over the last decade, those emerging research schools have seen the greatest increases in cost of any of the schools in the state. Um, UNT, for example, uh, tuition, or actually I think tuition and fees went from about $2,300 a semester to uh, more than 5,000, and that was in 2003, to more than 5,000 in 2014, which is a 115% increase. 
I know that these emerging research schools are, are kind of in a, a tough position because they're having to uh, try to grow and try to progress, but how can they do that, let's take UNT for example, without, um, how, how can they do that without continuing to see skyrocketing costs? Well, these, these costs are in fact been not skyrocketing. So here's a, uh, this is supposed to be Chancellor Confidential. Uh, we'll, we'll give you one of the confidential things that we know having looked at the data. Most of our institutions increased cost more between 1993 and 2003 than they did in the decade following deregulation. And you can look it up as a percentage increase because remember before so-called tuition deregulation, we had a multiplication of very specific fees across most of the campuses in Texas. We got up to something like 24 different student fees at UNT under the so-called regulated environment. So the percentage increase from 1993 to 2003 was greater than it has been since. It's still on average below the national average. So I want to compliment the state. We didn't have a need-based aid program until 2000, and in the last 15 years, we've done more to increase need-based student aid than any other state. We didn't have a research strategy, and the state's come up with a research strategy. So the state has actually now putting more money per student in than the national average. Who would have thought that Texas would be investing more per student in higher education than the national average? And yet we spend less per student than the national average, and therefore our student charges are less than the national average. Those are significant accomplishments. I know you're concerned about debt. Our, in our case at UNT, the debt level of students has been pretty much flat for the past decade. It's not every student, but for those who have student debt upon graduation, uh, it's been pretty flat in the $21,000 range. What concerns me is that the, the wrong students have debt. The more you persist in our current system, the more likely you are to graduate with debt. The ones that are there for a semester or two and that are marginally motivated can get in and out of our system with either a Pell Grant or a Texas Grant and maybe uh, drop out without much debt. So that's kind of backwards. But uh, I, d I don't want to be quoted saying that cost is not an issue. It's always an issue. Uh, and we all have programs to deal with it. For example, when we went to a fixed rate tuition plan, we didn't just pretend to care about it, we created an incentive for students so that if you accept a slight increase in year one, we not only guarantee you a flat four years, we give back a $4,000 rebate in year four. Half of our incoming freshmen chose our fixed rate tuition plan and over the past three years it has significantly reduced the anxiety about cost as half of our undergraduate student body is on a fixed rate plan. So I think Texas has had some pretty novel responses to the challenge of, of, of cost pressure. And then the last thing I'll say before I stop, for all the people who care about the marketplace and free enterprise, remember how much choice there is. You not only have the place-based choices of 38 general academic institutions with very, very different costs, you have Western governors for those that are place-bound in remote parts of the state. So I would say, isn't it a significant achievement that Texas is going to have some research universities? Those research universities are going to have higher costs, but they also have choices in every metropolitan area and every region for the students and their families to choose different price levels, different service levels. I think it's a pretty good system in Texas, and the results show that it's working. More students, more graduates. The emerging research institution in our system that you're referring to is Texas State University. Let me tell you some of the challenges that Texas State University faces. 
out of the 38 public universities in Texas, it's funded 35th, third from the bottom. Its teachers teach 20% more than the state average in classroom time and are paid 25% less than the state average. If we were to have a 3% increase in tuition, that would not cover inflation nor the increases in the Hazelwood costs. Hazelwood, which is a, a great program for veterans and their legacies, is funded by the other students at the university. This year, they will pay $17 million for that program. The students that aren't Legacy Hazelwood or Hazelwood will pick up an additional $17 million in expenses. So it's a bad formula. The state has continued to drop funding in formula over the past uh, decade or so, and uh, the students must pick it up. Money comes from the state or the students. Now, having said that, we're still 14% below the state average because we're determined to keep tuition low. But you can see from the statistics I cited, it's a, it's a difficult formula. Not only are they 35th in funding, they have the fifth highest graduation rate in the state. So they're doing some things right. I think the legislature's made uh, some significant investments in our emerging research universities in order to allow us to be more competitive nationally. And I think that's been a good investment because of the different programs. If you look at the TRIP program that uh, is out there right now, we've been able to leverage a private philanthropy at a significant rate because of the TRIP program, which improves the quality of our universities. It allows us to attract higher quality faculty. It allows us to maintain and retain the higher quality students in the state of Texas. We lose a lot of really good high school students to other uh, states, universities. And that we really should be worried about that. We should do what we need to do to be able to maintain and keep the best in Texas. Here at UT, UT is frozen basically at 40,000. And so there's a lot of room with the emerging research universities to be able to grow and attract the type of faculty as well as students. And I think the goal that the legislature has followed with regard to emerging research universities has been a good goal. Uh, I do believe that there is, if you'll recall, um, and I look at this legislative session, and the le our legislature invested in higher education when other states are not. If you look at the commitment that uh, Governor Abbott has uh, given, uh, Lieutenant Governor Patrick and Speaker Strauss, Supporting higher education is a long-term strategy for the health of this state. And I look at what they did this session uh, with regard to HEATH, tuition revenue bonds, supporting growth in the formula is a significant statement nationally that, hey, we're, we're here to try to be the best we can uh, and provide the best opportunities for our students in higher education. And by the way, if you're a faculty member at some institution in some state that really hadn't been investing, why don't you move to Texas? Because we have a greater, we've, we're providing greater opportunities. At the same time, if you look at what has happened in higher education, if you go back to the economic, uh, the, where we had the economic issues beginning in 2009, where we cut the budget significantly, higher education took the most significant cuts during that period of time. In fact, about $1.3 billion was taken out of the higher education budget, just like in other areas, but we have never fully recovered, especially when you look at the formula, the basic formula for higher ed uh, 
the way we fund the, the core programs. Uh, the, what happened was that we have now funded growth and we've continued to try to fund growth, but the rate that we used to be is about $10 less. I think it's about $10 less or $9 less per weighted semester credit hour. So that's where we have not been able to catch up and it's very difficult to catch up. As well as uh, the uh, Hazelwood cost, uh, which is a great program, good for our veterans, but at the same time it's costing significant uh, it's a significant cost and burden on all of the students because tuition generally increases to have to fill the gap that's left by the Hazelwood Legacy Program. So I think, it, and I look forward to the opportunity to work with the legislature to deal with these issues because I think that uh, uh, higher education is our future. Uh, if you look at these goals, the Higher Education Coordinating Board has set their good goals uh, and that, that's how we stay healthy as a state is with a healthy higher education system. So I think it'll be a good conversation about tuition, about how uh, we share in the ability to uh, keep the cost stable for students, uh, but that's gonna be a partnership between the legislature and the universities. Yeah, no, I just wanna kinda of highlight you know, a couple things that were said. You know, Lee talked about choice, and I think that's an important uh, fact uh, to remember is that uh, students in Texas have uh, a great choice around the state. Uh, when you look at UT Dallas, which is one of our emerging research universities, um, we have increased um, the tuition at UT Dallas over the years uh, in order to make sure that we have the, the proper labs, the proper support for uh, what is expected. It's a primarily an engineering school. And of course, you also see that uh, at UT Dallas, it has the greatest rise in enrollment of any of our universities because students want to come to great emerging uh, research universities. So I, I think, again, recognizing that there's a choice out there that we are going to invest at the UT system, we are going to invest in our emerging research universities. Uh, we think this is absolutely the way to go, but make no mistake about it. It costs money to do it right. And uh, just before, we're about to open up to questions from the audience, but before we do, uh, there is not a UT Austin game today, but uh, if there was, you would be able to buy about a $12 Bud Light, I think, um, for the first time this season. Chancellor McRaven, how is that going? Uh, has that been successful so far? Are there any issues there? Yeah, what I can tell you is I have not seen uh, an uptick in any sort of police reports regarding um, uh, you know, inappropriate behavior at the stadium. Having said that, I have received a number of emails from fans who you know, don't like uh, the atmosphere they sense as a result of the alcohol in the stadium. We're going to kind of continue to, to look at this, um, but, uh, but right now uh, it seems to be going fine, but I, I always kind of keep my ear to the ground to make sure that we are, we are doing what the fan base uh, really wants and expects us to do. So uh, yeah, we can go ahead and open up to questions from the audience. Um, there are some microphones on either side, so if you guys want to just, if you have questions, if you want to line up, and we can start with you. Yeah, okay, um, going back to the diversity issues, would you all talk a little bit about what strategies you're using to recruit, retain, grow diverse faculty? Well, well I'll start. Um, I will tell you, I'm not at all satisfied with the diversity of our faculty, candidly. Um, I think when we look, as the, as the other chancellor said, when we look at the diversity in the student body, uh, we're doing better. We can, we can always continue to get better. 
but our faculty clearly does not uh, represent our student base in, in terms of diversity. So I'm working with each of the campuses to, to look at ways that we can improve the diversity of our faculty. At, at our you know, three predominant Hispanic uh, institutions at, uh, at UTRGV, at El Paso, and at San Antonio, you still see uh, predominantly white uh, faculty. And, uh, and we've got to tackle this issue, and we've got to tackle it aggressively because, again, I, I think the, the students coming up, they want to see uh, you know, that the faculty kind of reflects their aspirations and their goals, uh, but also we have to strike that balance between making sure we are absolutely getting the, the quality we need in order to teach the, the great students that are coming into our system. Uh, if you want to, can you state your name and organization? Um, er, yeah, Eric Goodman. I'm from uh, Texas Student Media. Um, I will place this question first to Chancellor McRaven because I know this to be true at UT and it may very well be true at the other systems. Um, the graduate four-year graduation is stressed as such an imperative goal for student success. Right. As students, we hear it from President Fenves all the way down to our academic advisors. Um, <clears throat> Does that not uh, limit the opportunities the students have that require more than four years of education, the opportunity to change a major, to add a major, to study, to add a post-baccalaureate degree? Yeah, it's a great question. And uh, you know, when I came into higher education, I, I went around and started visiting our academic campuses. And, uh, and everywhere I went, um, the question about four-year graduation rates came up. And again, I will tell you, I'm not satisfied with our four-year graduation rates. And uh, I think UT Austin is, uh, under David Laudy, is doing a great job of, of increasing the four-year graduation rates. But every institution I went to, uh, candidly, as I talked to the presidents, they told me all the reasons why their four-year graduation rates weren't what they probably ought to be. And, and some of them were very good reasons. Um, and I said, and I, my takeaway after visiting all the campuses was, I got it. The four-year graduation rate is not the end-all, be-all of the determination of the quality of a university. But make no mistake about it, it is an important data point. It's an important data point because the students going through, the longer they spend time at the university, the more debt they accrue, uh, the potential for less students to come in as a result of uh, more students uh, in the student body uh, presents a problem. There's a whole lot of things that are important for the four-year graduation rate. It is not, it is not, again, the only criteria for determining the quality of the university and our ability to have student success. But again, I think it's an important quality. We want students to be able to continue their education in whatever, if they want to have a second major, if they want to go on and do others. So, but, but that's a very small percentage, really, of the students when we look at the four-year graduation rate. Um, so we are, we are going to aggressively tackle this in the next couple of years. It takes a long time as you would expect, to be able to make an incremental movement in the graduation rate. Um, I actually uh, went back to uh, my vice chancellor for uh, institutional research, and I'm a, I'm a big football fan, and I, I talked about the quarterback rating. I said, you know, when you watch uh, Tom Brady uh, play football and you see the number of passes Brady throws, if he throws 25 passes, but you know, only 20 are caught, um, that's not the only measure of the quality of the, of the quarterback rating. Because in fact, if that football hit the receiver in his hands and the receiver dropped it, Tom Brady actually gets a percentage of that throw. My point was, there's a lot of factors that go into understanding student success and the quality of a university.
So I actually have our institutional research folks taking a look at a, at a variety of factors to determine whether or not we are meeting the demands of the state of Texas in terms of student success and the quality of our schools. But again, I'll get back to the point that um, four-year graduation rates are, are not the only criteria, but they are an important criteria for a whole lot of reasons. I think the graduation rate issue is certainly a national debate, not just here in Texas, and whether it's four, five, or six. I think the, the uh, challenge, and I think higher ed has to meet the challenge, is how do we, how do we improve those graduation rates? And it's, it, it's an interesting concept to me that we now have this expansive dual credit Yet, I don't see that that has helped us uh, advance the, the five- and four-year graduation rates. You would think it would, uh, but I think it, uh, it's an interesting uh, issue and something that we ought to look at. But I do know that a challenge for all of us is to be able to improve the graduation rates, and I think that's a good, met a good metric, uh, but it is one that is, it has many variables in it, as Bill, Bill says, and it's hard to uh, really get your hand, your, your there's not one solution to that problem. I think it does require more investment by the institutions in counseling uh, as well as, uh, and it's in the institution's best interest for students not to take 12 hours, actually. Uh, if students can be encouraged to, or the new, the new 12 is 15, uh, I think that would uh, also improve not only help the institutions, because institutions are funded on the weighted semester credit hour, not on the number of people in the seats. So there's a there's a lot of things that are involved, a lot of variables involved in that discussion. But I do think it's it's a, an important goal and one that higher education needs to continue to focus on uh, in a in, in a major way. All of us on this stage have increased academic advising in a significant way on our campuses in the past five or so years. Uh, intrusive academic advising. <laughs> on Sam Houston's campus, if, if someone misses a few classes or pop quiz grades go down, they get a call. Why don't you come in? Let's talk about this. Aggressive, intrusive advising as to, are you sure that you should be pre-med? Because no one who has failed this class that you just failed has ever graduated in pre-med in this institution. It's good information to have. At the same time, when we talk about four-year graduation rates, we need to look at Texas in 1960 and Texas in, in 2015. In 1960, the average college student was 20 years old, did not work, parents paid the tuition. Today, the average age of a college student is 26. In our system, 72% of our students are working, and not just fluff jobs a few hours here and there, but are working. They have families. They're married. And so... We're also educating a lot of first-generation college students that we weren't doing in 1960 who, who have different challenges. And so uh, we celebrate graduations, whether they're seven years, 10 years, or 30 years, uh, for those who have a goal of a four-year graduation rate and an expectation of that. And for those who we think can do that, we will do everything we can and want to do everything we can to cause that to happen. We've seen about a 51% increase statewide in the graduation rate over the last decade, which means some of the things we're doing are having an impact that is moving from 12 to 15 semester credit hours as the defined full-time default. It includes block tuition where after you take 12 semester credit hours, you don't pay more to take 15 and up. Uh, those are incentives to students 
I think we ought to have more incentives. We ought to have incentives built into the financial aid system <clears throat> so that a student doesn't tragically have to stop out or drop out for one semester to save up money after they've already been enrolled for, for five or six semesters making good progress. We ought to have a financial aid system that recognizes that and gives an additional incentive uh, to keep them on track. But this student's question was really about whether the pressure can be too much going the other way. Uh, most of us are not close enough to 100% on our four-year graduation rate to be concerned that we've loaded the incentives too strongly. But I do think you have to recognize that the public and the taxpayers are entitled to say that we're going to subsidize this very, very valuable education up to a point, and that point may be 120 semester credit hours. And if you choose to spread that over time, if you choose to change majors, then there's going to be a different rate of cost that you and your family uh, ha have to make individual decisions about. That really is what has been driven in the last decade toward a more efficient and focused system uh, where the states reduce the number of hours in, in degree programs, they've reduced the number of excess hours you can take. I don't see that pressure changing, so there will still be room for student choice, but there will be some incentives involved. Our next question, uh, could you state your name and organization? Please? Yes. Hi, I'm Lauren Stotler. I'm the student body president at Texas State University. Uh, with my question, I'm going to kind of combine two of the topics we talked about today. So we talked about campus carry and the rising cost of tuition. Seeing as campus carry is an unfunded, unfunded mandate, uh, do you see certain costs uh, with, with having to implement things like storage or those, that possible training that we talked about? How do you plan to, I guess, handle that? I think there will be increased cost. I don't. I, I think in the larger scheme, I don't think those costs will be as significant as as one would think. Uh, signage is one cost. Uh, will that that will be something that'll the universities will have to bear, and some storage. But I don't see that as you know. It just depends on how you compute the cost. But I don't see it as a as a prohibitive thing. I, I think I think it uh, uh, so. I'm not so sure that's going to be a problem. Perhaps the legislature may want to consider helping universities, depending on how we flow this out over the years, to see how it works. But uh, at the end of the day, I don't see the cost as being something that's going to cause tuition to go up. Right. As unfunded mandates go, there are much bigger ones. Hazelwood. Okay, if you want to state your name and organization. Sure. Uh, my name is Bill Hammond. I notice that 75% of the panelists are recovering members of the Texas legislature. Uh, therefore, they're experts in public education, K-12. Uh, we get a new commissioner uh, sometime in the near future. Uh, what instructions, given the fact that only 25% of our high school students graduate career or college ready, what instructions would you give to the new commissioner? And please be specific. Do we have to answer questions from a former legislator? <laughs> Well, I don't know what the specific, I don't know what specific instructions would be, but, but I do think that, that uh, again, if we want to achieve the new goals that the coordinating board has set forth for us, is that we do need to have better high school instruction. I know there are a lot of new innovative ways to do that, and I would hope that our new commissioner would be in tune with allowing flexibility and new uh, opportunities, new teaching methodologies to be used, but that we stay away from these accountability systems that basically tie our teachers' hands, as we have done in the past. 
we have to be able to allow teachers to teach and uh, innovate and, and inspire kids to learn. And if we can ever do that, uh, we'll see a lot of improvement uh, and more preparedness for college. Uh, you know, I think House Bill 5 was a great uh, innovation in that it starts introducing the ability of recognizing people's skills and opportunities uh, and that all of us are a little different. And so I hope that our new commissioner understands that and understands that we're in a new world and that we need new innovations in teaching to be able to inspire children to want to learn, to inspire their curiosity and inspire their, uh, their ability to succeed. That's a sermon, I won't pass the plate on that. So I think we have time for about one more question. Hello, yes, my name's Denise. I am represented in University of Rio Grande Valley, UTRGV, and I had a question about um, campus carry. So do you think our university will be able to distinguish who has a concealed license, um, having said that there's a large population of students? And how or what plans can we institute to be able to distinguish who has a concealed license? Because certainly we know that people do not obey the law and can still conceal carry a weapon. So what plans do you see for um, this situations? I do not believe we will be able to identify concealed handgun license permit holders. We don't now. Uh, our police chiefs know we don't have airport security in all of our buildings on our campuses, and there are probably concealed handgun uh, license weapons now, even though it's against the law. We don't have airport security. Uh, so I, I do not believe that this change will make our campuses less safe or more safe after we get through developing thoughtful policies. We have signage. Uh, I believe law-abiding people will be law-abiding, and those who are not inclined to be law-abiding will occasionally cause problems. I've always thought it interesting to discuss the notion of that the classrooms would be gun-free, because I think if you have, if you say, well, the classrooms are going to be gun-free, well, that, what that means is, is that the CHL holders will not be carrying in the classroom because they'll be law-abiding, they, they will follow the law. But those who are not CHL holders, who don't follow the law, who, th those will be the ones will be carrying in the classroom. So I, it's a kind of an interesting, it's a really interesting debate on, on this, but um, uh, I, you know, it's, it's gonna be tough to, uh, you're not gonna be able to distinguish because you can't require uh, the identity of, of uh, persons who have, who have, I don't even think those databases are open to the public. Uh, you mentioned that there's not airport security at universities now. Is that a thing of the future, do you think? No. Um, I don't think so. Well, it, it's, that was not practical. Possible. It would yes. be. <laughs> my, <clears throat> my, point, my point simply was that it is a consoling thought to think that somehow we haven't had any weapons on campus. Current law is you have to keep them in the glove compartment of your vehicle. You can come and park your vehicle on a campus, but they have to stay in the glove compartment. That's the law. That's not, I suspect, the factual reality. But where I started earlier today was talking about the incidents. Uh, my police chiefs can look me in the eye and say, oh, we, we have not had an incident involving a CHL permit holder. We have had incidents involving other people 
who violated the law, brought weapons on campus, were, were caught uh, because they were being reckless in some way, uh, and they were arrested for illegally bringing a weapon on our campus. None of them were CHL permit holders. So um, I don't predict that we'll attempt to, to afford airport security. Then you'd really have to put a perimeter fence around the campus uh, and, and have only a few gates entering a campus. And um, I don't think that the, the environment is going to require that nor would it be possible or practical. Well, we are out of time. Chancellors, thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you, thank you everyone, for coming.